From Washington, this is the CQ Budget Podcast, your leading Capitol Hill source on how Congress allocates federal taxpayer dollars. I'm David Lerman, your budget tracker and editor of the CQ Budget Newsletter. And we have a double header today on this very busy week. Uh, first up is Andrew Siddons, who covers healthcare for CQ, here to talk to us about the biggest non-defense spending bill of the year that, that uh, House appropriators will unveil this week. Hi, hi Andrew. Thanks Good for being here. Thank you. And Doug Sword, who covers finance and tax policy, who's here to talk about a, another bleak forecast we got on the Social Security program. Thanks, Doug. Hey, David. So the fiscal 2020 appropriations process kicks off this week as House appropriators get busy writing spending bills for the coming fiscal year. And we expect three of the 12 annual bills to emerge from subcommittees this week, starting with the biggest non-defense measure of the year. And that's a bill funding the Departments of Health and Human Services, Labor, and Education. This bill is usually a huge political battleground for partisan fights over health insurance, abortion, gun violence research, school choice, and more, which is why Andrew is here to give us a preview. So, Andrew, what should we expect to see in this bill, and how partisan is it going to get? It's going to start on the House side uh, as a fairly partisan bill, because House Democrats are going to write it. They don't need Republican votes to, to pass it, necessarily. Uh, but you know, over time, as the process moves along, we will see it ultimately morph into a bipartisan compromise because of the Senate. But in recent years, uh, when Republicans were in control of the House, they were passing partisan bills. Uh, so we should expect the Democrats to start with this same approach. Uh, it'll kind of be like a mirror image of what we've seen in recent years. The Republican bills had yeah, this is the first year the Democrats are in control of the House right. in uh, ages. In a decade. So, <laughs> uh, so the, the, these bills will look different coming out of the subcommittee. Here. Right. And it, what, what will look different isn't necessarily the different funding levels for different agencies, because things like the National Institutes of Health, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, mental health and opioid programs, those all got, those are all popular with Republicans, saw funding boosts, um, you know, as part of the Republicans' priorities. Uh, but what Republicans did was also uh, restrict thing, restrict funding from going to health providers like Planned Parenthood or others who provide abortions. Um, it's always they, a hot-button issue. Yeah. And they put in uh, language that would have restricted the administration from implementing the Affordable Care Act, the 2010 health care law. Right. Now, the Democrats are in control. Uh, we can probably expect to see language that explicitly tries to protect funding that's going to Planned Parenthood uh, because the Trump administration has been trying uh, on the administrative side to block funds from going uh, to Planned Parenthood um, uh, through what's known as the Title X uh, Family Planning uh, Grant Program. I think it would be a safe bet that Democrats will, you know, put in language that would protect providers like Planned Parenthood uh, from being excluded from those funds. Right. Um, I think it would also be a safe bet to see funding for things uh, like the so-called navigators, which are supposed to help people you know, find insurance on the individual marketplace uh, exchanges that were set up by the 2010 health law. Mm-hmm. Which I think the Trump administration was trying to cut back on. Exactly. One of the, it probably won't be a very high figure, but one of the more note 
were the changes that we could probably expect to see is explicit funding uh, at CDC or elsewhere for uh, Centers for Disease Control. Right, at for uh, gun violence research. Um, last year, um, it there was, uh, so for decades, there's been what's known as the Dickey Amendment, which is language in the bill that says no funds shall be used to advocate for gun control, uh, essentially. What that has translated to is, you know, no funds being explicitly appropriated for research on gun control or gun violence. That doesn't mean that no research is being conducted, but it's sort of very basic statistics being compiled uh, on the number of violent deaths you know, mm-hmm. in the country. Its accuracy or validity is sort of questioned a little bit. Um, it, they could do better, basically. So last year, the big change was that there was language in a, the accompanying bill report that said this... Even though we we retain this prohibition on gun control advocacy, this doesn't mean that no gun research can't be conducted at all. But Republicans stopped short of actually explicitly including the funding, even though the Trump administration was saying, we will do this research, we just don't have the funding for it. We would do it if and we... there was never any actually money put in to do the Right, the and there, there was this circular argument. Trump administration would say, We'll do it, just give us the money. Then top Republican appropriators would say, well, we don't think we need to, they can do it if they want to. We yeah. don't need to yeah. spell it out for them. I think the change we'll see this year, um, this has been a priority for the, the new chairman of the committee, Representative Nita Lowy. Adjusted for age fluctuations, gun deaths have jumped by nearly 20% in the past two decades. It is our responsibility to investigate why. As members of Congress, particularly those tasked with funding public health research, it is well past time that we fund research to identify what leads to these gun deaths, and more importantly, how to prevent them. So um, I think that we'll see explicit funding for that. Okay, we should say this is a huge bill. It's over $100 billion of discretionary funding. Total across the three agencies last year was $178.1 billion, uh, approximately. Um, I think if House Democrats... the biggest except for defense. Exactly. I think if House Democrats have their way, we, you know, we don't know what the total allocations for all of the bills will be yet, uh, but this bill overall is likely to see a boost. And for all the partisan fights over the bill, we should also say that there are there are some issues in which there's bipartisan agreement, right? I right. Mean, and and particularly what you've written about extensively on the National Institutes of Health. Republicans love NIH under you know Republican control over the last decade, give or take. Uh, it's or, uh, over the last five years, it's seen a ten billion dollar boost from twenty nine billion to thirty nine billion. The Trump administration still wants to cut it again. Well, the Trump administration's budget proposal was operating under the assumption of twelve percent, basically across the board cuts, assuming that Congress wouldn't strike a deal to raise the statutory, you know, budget caps. Uh, the HHS secretary said that, with a few exceptions, the Trump budget proposal this year cut. HHS about 12% across the board, including NIH. Um, So it wasn't just that the Trump administration is out to get NIH. Last year, they actually did propose uh, an increase, I believe. Um, But this time, they're trying to cut it as part of a broader cut. Right. And it sounds like we've got appropriators of both parties that are going to 
kill that idea. Really. Right. So assuming that they actually do, you know, reach a some sort of budget agreement, um, I, I think it's safe to say the NIH is due. For, it will probably see another boost, um, even if they don't reach another budget agreement. It's probably still possible that it'll get a boost. It would just maybe be more difficult because it would have to come at the expense of, of other programs. But also, Democrats have an advantage here because they're assuming much higher spending limits than what the Trump administration was trying to stick to. So they're operating with a lot more cash to go around that they can sprinkle on all their favorite programs as this as these bills come out. Right. So this bill is going to be a much higher starting point than the, the Trump administration's uh, budget was. So it'll certainly look a lot mm. different from what the White House was proposing. Right. Like most of the bills. Right. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and then, of course, this will not be the final word on this bill, and the Senate is controlled by Republicans, so we're looking at a rewrite, I assume. Right, but probably not too substantial of one, because in the Senate, uh, they still also need Democrat votes to pass it. Uh, right. And in the last few years, this bill, by the end of the day, um, Democrats were very happy with it. The Senate focused on the areas of agreement. Uh, they kept controversial policy uh, provisions out of the bill. Uh, they gave boosts to programs that were popular, you know, across the political spectrum. And last year, it, I think, passed overwhelmingly with a lot of Democrats. So so we'll see some tweaks, but maybe not a huge overhaul. Of this, hey, if, of this if, if I could ask something, wasn't last year the first year that uh, the Labor HH bill actually passed the chambers? Uh, the first, in a while. The first time in a while that it passed standalone. I mean, it wasn't standalone. It, it was, was with also defense. with defense, but it passed on time, which was notable. Yeah. Uh, and it was actually, you know, brought to the bill uh, or brought to the floors outside of the context of an even bigger omnibus, which was notable. And it, so they're trying again to pass it on time or early well, this, this year, the, which which <coughs> this is the Democrats' favorite bill, really, right. of the 12 bills. So And defense is Republicans' favorite bill, which I right. guess is why they linked them last right. year. And I think that uh, based on some of our reporting, I think that that's probably the strategy again this year is to pair it with defense once again. Oh. Okay, so we'll... We'll be looking closely at that bill as it emerges uh, as early as Monday. Uh, meanwhile, we got a report last week on the financial health of both Medicare and Social Security from the Board of Trustees. We learned the Medicare forecast is still bleak, as Andrew knows. The hospital trust fund is expected to go insolvent by 2026. Is that right? Second year in a row that the trustees have made that prediction. And what that means is that uh, at that point, you know, it will... I think a lot of people describe this as Medicare will be out of money. Uh, that's not ex that's not exactly what it is. It's just Medicare will only be able to pay about ninety percent of what it currently you know pays uh, out for of, its out services. Out of enough money to pay the full benefits, right? It'll be the same thing on the Social Security side, which we're going to get to in a moment. Only it'll be eighty percent for Social Security. But Doug, you di we did see a little surprise in the Social Security forecast this year, which you reported on. What was the big change there? Because that w that uh, was surprising. Uh, it, was, to me. it was more like a, like a trickle of a surprise. Um, it's more more like a, a small surprise amidst a, a continuing gusher of terrible information for this fund. Okay. Uh, last year, the projection was that the fund would run out of money. The combined funds would run out of money by 2034. This year, it's been moved back to 2035. So. It stayed, Not it, that big a change overall. It right. tread water, stayed in place uh, uh, pretty much entirely because we have such a strong economy and there were uh, uh, more um, uh, payroll taxes being paid into the fund. The fund had been projected to actually lose money in 2018. Instead, it gained $3 billion. 
and it will probably have a small gain this year. But starting in 2020, it starts going downhill, and there's more than a million added recipients uh, added between now and 2035 per year. And we'll go from 63 to something close to 80 million recipients. A lot more old people, in other words. And with, and with, with fewer and fewer workers to support them. Right. And so in 2035, the fund hits zero, which means that uh, uh, the only payments that would be made are the money coming in in new payroll taxes. And that'll cover about, at that point, about 80% of benefits. Okay, so still bleak overall, but tell us about the surprise smidgen of good news. The smidgen of good news is that the the, the trustees uh, recognize that the much smaller fund, that there's two funds, the Old Age Survivors Insurance Fund and the Disability Insurance Fund. And the Disability Insurance Fund is much smaller. Uh, but for years, there's as the economy has improved, fewer people have been applying for disability insurance instead going into the workforce. And so this past year, the, the trustees finally recognized that trend and they um, had been projecting that the disability insurance fund would run out of money in the early 2030s, and now they've moved that to 2052, nearly a two-decade move. That's but quite a jump in the life of that fund. It's quite a jump, but the, and the, the retirement and, and survivor's benefit fund um, it was projected to be out of money in 2034. Last year, still projected to be out of money in 2034. In this year's report, but the, um, uh, the, 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 the new numbers out of disability uh, when you combine those funds, which you can't legally do, but uh, Congress would probably do that if push came to shove. But if you combine the funds, the, the, year, is, the year of when everything comes to roost ends in 2035 instead of 2034. Okay. But it is surprising that all of a sudden the Disability Insurance Fund has 20 years of extra life left and they've got a gusher of new money there. Well, it's because they took a while to recognize the trends that were going on, uh, that the applications were down uh, or at least even, that the uh, benefit payments were, were, were uh, uh, actually declining a little bit. Uh, and that, that trend had started in 2010. Okay. So surprising a smidgen of good news there at the, at, at the, at the tiniest part of the Social Security program. Right. But still, uh, still trouble that we know the Social Security program needs a fix. Yes. Any prospects of having one? Uh, there are several proposals out there. The, um, um, and, but anything uh, likely to get going here? Well, presidential politics being what it is, uh, uh, Bernie Sanders has a bill out there that uh, Kamala Harris, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, and uh, Cory Booker have all signed on to, which would all right, currently, once you, once you earn $132,900, you don't have to pay your payroll taxes after that point. Right. The, the Sanders bill w would have wealthier taxpayers pay on higher incomes. I think it's above 200, $250,000. Um, uh, okay, but no one really thinks that this is getting off the ground uh, before this election, right? Well, there's a bill in the House that's probably going to come up for markup before uh, the August recess. It's John Larson's bill. He's the uh, chairman of the uh, House Ways and Means uh, Subcommittee on Social uh, Security. We're shining a light on all the options to enhance and expand Social Security because to do nothing is not an option. And we've pointed that out statistically what happens in just 15 years actuarially and most importantly, what happens to individuals would be devastating across this country. He's had three hearings on the bill so far, uh, and I believe he does want to bring it to a full committee for a vote. Now, this would, this would secure Social Security for all time, unlike the Sanders bill, which would push the, the, the drop-dead date back about 35 years. 
this would make Social Security solvent through 2094, but there's a sizable tax increase and sizable benefit increase, and also, of course, uh, uh, raising the cap on uh, on how long you pay into the fund. Uh, uh, so he may get a committee vote on that, but that's probably where it ends. I would think that maybe the best he could hope for is getting at the House floor and placing a marker because this has to be, yeah, this has to be done in the next dozen years or so. If the, the longer they wait, the more expensive the fix gets. Right, and but there's no impetus to move quickly now. Except that it's going to get more expensive next year and the year after. Right. Okay. So we won't hold our breath for a Social Security fix anytime soon, but we'll be busy tracking the first batch of spending bills that get drafted this week as the fiscal 2020 process kicks off, and CQ will be covering it all for you as always. My thanks again to Andrew Siddons, our expert healthcare reporter. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you, David. And to Doug Sword, our expert tax and finance reporter. Thanks, Doug. Always wonderful, David. And thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week. Until then, you can stay up to date by subscribing to the CQ Budget Newsletter. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and rate us on iTunes or find us on Spotify, Stitcher, NPR One, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And for more budget news, you can subscribe to CQ.com or visit RollCall.com. Or find us on Twitter. The handle is at CQNow or at RollCall. See you next week.